0: Hey there, podcast
1: listeners, welcome to a new episode of Field Days, an award-winning podcast about news and hot topics related to the Michigan Department of Corrections. Here are your almost-witty hosts, Chris Gouts and Greg Straub.
2: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Field Days Podcast. I'm Greg Straub, joined as always by my co-host and department spokesperson, Chris Gouts. Chris, how are you today, man?
0: I am doing well. I'm very excited. we got a big, big day today.
2: We do. Yeah, I know a lot of people have been uh, waiting for this episode. And uh, so I'm excited to finally get it out. But before we get it out, let's talk about Friday. And you attended the new officer's graduation, right?
0: Yeah, it was another great event uh, at the Lansing Center on Friday. We had uh, most of the, the wardens there from the Lower Peninsula, where we had more than 70 new officers uh, fanning out and joining the ranks uh, this week at their facilities to do on-the-job training. Uh, we are in great need of officers. We've got more than 700 vacancies around the state right now, so these 70 are going to be very welcome at their facilities uh, to re- uh, to replenish the ranks and to uh, help the staff there with the vacancies that they're all facing. Those events are always very positive. Um, it was also great to see it was very much a family event. We had some staff uh, in the audience whose children were uh, now joining the ranks as officers, so that's really cool to see how much uh, of a family atmosphere that this department can, can breed, uh, yourself included. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I- and what was also a great treat, as training has really done an outstanding job, uh, could kind of revamping uh, the graduations and changing things up. And one of the really cool things they do is that they have the the class uh, select uh, a representative to give a speech at the graduation, and it's got to be pretty nerving uh, for you know for these officers to to get up there. You know they just spent eight weeks going through classroom and physical training, yeah. And then all of a sudden they say, "Hey, I want you to go up and stand up in front of several hundred people and and talk."
2: Not everybody can be
0: the MC like Chris Gouts. Well, that's true. Yeah. But I when this officer, Officer uh, Jacqueline Chariot. Who is going to be going, who Is now working at uh, the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility? Um, she did an outstanding job, gave just an amazing speech, as did the officer uh, the last time. Yeah, I, I actually saw that one. You yeah, saw that She one. was great, yeah. So this one definitely rivaled uh, her speech as well. Jacqueline did an outstanding job talking about the importance of being an officer. Uh, being safe, uh, looking out for your fellow officers, and being part of a team. It was really inspiring, it was really great to hear, and afterwards I had several people come up to me and say, you better watch out because (laughs) she she might uh, have your job someday. It's not, so, it's not that hard to get and, your job. Please. And I, I totally agreed with them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Officer Cherry, you know, we welcome you to uh, to the ranks, and thank you for being there. I think you're going to be a great fit at WHV. Congrats to, uh, to Officer Chariot and all the other officers that were there. Uh, really great job, and we look forward to the next graduation.
2: That's right. Like you said, they're all out at the facilities today, and they're all uh, hopefully making an impact on people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very important job, very dangerous job, but a super important job that can make an impact and change people's lives. So, um don't forget that you know every day what you do matters and we can't thank you enough for for what you do um so, but let's get into uh our interview today we, it's important we have uh, secretary from pennsylvania department of corrections john wetzel he is an awesome person as everyone will listen today and hear just how um, fun he was and how how unfiltered some of his responses were so you know today we're going to get into some of the things, it's going to be a two-part episode, right, Chris? I think that's where we're going to work this.
0: Yeah, we'll have this week and next week. Okay. We're going to we, hear from Secretary Wetzel.
2: It was a great interview. It was, um, you know, it, we're going to break it up because we didn't want to shut it off. We, we just kept going and going and going. So in the first episode, we're going to try to talk about, you know, some the size and scope of Pennsylvania compared to Michigan. Uh, we're going to talk about what Secretary Wetzel feels as the role of corrections in public safety. Uh, we're going to talk a little evidence-based corrections and uh, in, in, in how that r- results in better outcomes. Uh, what else we got? I think some political talk maybe, Chris?
0: Yeah, I want to talk to him about how he deals with the legislature. So I think you'll really enjoy the answer. I know I did. Um, He definitely has a different style than most uh, corrections directors do. Most kind of keep their head down and stay out of the news. Um, He... goes at it full force uh, in defense's department uh, and is very uh, adamant and, and, and vocal speaker, but you'll hear all that, um, and I think everybody's going to really enjoy this one. I know people have been asking us about this. We recorded this several months ago now, it yeah, seems uh, like. I think it was May,
2: probably, yeah. yeah so I know Kevin, Kevin Kemp, the uh, executive director of Asco, was asking about it when he came to our conference, so that yeah. was in May.
0: Without further ado, I think we should get to uh, get a much-anticipated much interview. Anybody that's uh, big into corrections in prison is going to love hearing from Secretary Wetzel.
2: We have another huge get for this podcast, and I, I'm excited to talk with him, and I'm excited to talk about all the great things going on in corrections in his state, and I want to introduce Secretary John Wetzel from the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking with us today. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to uh, talk to you guys today.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know why don't, why don't we just kick this off by kind of talking about who you are. We're, we're, uh, we know you're the Secretary of uh, the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania, but uh, how did you get there? Well, I'm a lifelong
1: Pennsylvanian, born here, will probably die here, hopefully not too soon. Started in corrections actually as a part-time correctional officer in 1989 where I was a college football player at Division II Bloomsburg. So, uh, my brother worked at the little county jail, so I would, um, go home one weekend a month, work two doubles, and then I'd have, you know, money, uh, for recreational activities in college the rest of the month and then I'd work summers there. And then uh, when I left school, I just came became a full-time correctional officer and spent nine years doing that at uh, two county jails here in Pennsylvania. And then uh, went back and finished my degree. I actually quit undergrad my last semester. Uh, not a good career move, but I guess <laughs> I worked out <laughs> the end. Yeah. And went to work full-time. And then I went back, got my degree, and then um, started promoting from there. So 98 is when I got my degree and I became a counselor. Ninety-nine, I became the head of the counseling department at Berks County Jail. In uh, 2000, I became the head of the training academy there. And in two thousand 2001, I became warden of Franklin County, also in Pennsylvania. And uh, did that from 2002 until 2010. While I uh, was there, I was appointed by uh, Governor Ed Rendell to the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons. And um, the, the Pennsylvania has a pretty restrictive... Criteria of what you can get expunged. So, pretty much the the primary way people get uh, crimes expunged is through this pardons board. So it's not like a parole board and pardons board. It's a part time board. Uh, and so I was put on that board in 2007, where I met the person who was the Attorney general at the time Tom Corbett and when he became governor he tapped me
0: for this job very cool so um, why don't we just start uh, also by just having you kind of talk a little bit about the size and the scope of your system so people can get a sense for you know what how compare comparable it is to Michigan in terms of how many facilities you have you know what you're responsible for do you have the parole board do you have the field operations and how many prisons prisoners that kind of thing
1: okay yeah we're very comparable uh, to you all. As a matter of fact, when I first took this job in 2010, we were renting beds from you guys. We had 1,000-hour inmates out in uh, Michigan. At that time, we had like 51,700 inmates. We're down to 48,000 inmates. Uh, We have them in 25 uh, prisons. We have another 40 or 45 halfway houses. We have 18,000 staff. and I oversee both prisons and the field supervision um, of parole, which is relatively new for us. We just took over the uh, field supervision aspect in October of
0: last year. Very cool so one of the things we got from reading your bio is that you, like you said you took over a, a growing system and, and you really turned it around and uh, oversaw as director or as, as secretary the, the first population decline in, in your prison population in four decades. Uh, what do you what do you attribute that to?
1: Well one, um, I inherited a great system from Secretary beard. I came in here with a system that I didn't have to worry about major security issues or or those kinds of things. And we could really just focus on um, looking at who was coming in prison and and getting more efficient. And I I think the second thing I really attribute to is we have great staff here at Pennsylvania DOC. I mean, I I really love my team. We have really smart people. And we really empower them to be creative and do good things. So I think it's a combination of um, um, those two. And then just coming to look at a system. I had never stepped foot in a state prison before I got this job. So I was literally running a 300-bed county jail one day and then this (laughs) 51,000-inmate system the next. And um, while a lot of people thought I was over my head and thought the governor was crazy for appointing me, um, I I tell you, running a little county jail was, was a good training ground for running this big system because in a little county jail, you don't have resources right? So you have to, like, I was my press person, I was my attorney, I negotiated my contracts and all that stuff. And so um, I also didn't know anything about state prison operations. I knew security operations and those kinds of things. So I could really look at things with a fresh eye and really question everything. And I think that uh, coupled with our staff, you know, buying into this notion that, you know, if everyone is in our prisons, the vast majority of them are going to get out. And so... We really waste an opportunity when we don't try to make them better while they're incarcerated. Staff bought into that relatively quickly, and and it's been a, a pretty good run since.
0: Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you about that because I've seen you talk about this. You know, you're you're a great person to, to look up on YouTube. You've got lots of uh, different things that people can can see if they want to learn more about you and hear more about some your, of your talks that you've given. But I, I guess from like the thirty thousand foot view, what do you see as is your job um, as secretary? And, and then what what role does corrections play, whether it's in society or in just uh, public safety?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I'd say we we are a public safety entity, and that both means. That we don't have people jumping over our fence, knock on wood, but also that uh, public safety and that we're going to release 20,000 people back to every county in Pennsylvania. And if we're not doing anything to make them less likely to commit a crime, then what the hell are we doing? You know, Pennsylvanians invest $2.6 billion in their correction system. They should expect and demand a return on that investment. And I think very specifically, when you look at 20,000 people coming back, you can make an honest argument that if we have less people coming back and committing crimes, that's grassroots crime prevention. And I and I really, I really uh, appreciate our staff, um, you know, stepping up to that challenge. That is not just care, custody, and control it is not a goal for Pennsylvania. That's a logical consequence of running a good disi- a good system. Our goal is to reduce crime, and our role in that is to provide, uh, you know, identify from the time someone comes through our front door what the cause of them committing crime is, and then address that through evidence-based programming. And then when we pass folks off into the community, uh, provide the proper level of supervision, and part of that supervision is guidance to overcome the barriers that we know folks coming out of our system have. So that's, that's really, in a nutshell, our mission is to reduce crime. Our role in that is to work with folks who are sentenced to us uh, to get them out of a life of crime
2: altogether. That's a great answer. I love that answer. You know, I want to touch on briefly the clients that enter our system now. They're changing over the years, right? They're not the same. They're not the same client that there was probably when you started your job. Can you talk about you know what you see as a challenge in corrections from that aspect? You you, you often say um, you often talk about the medical field and how they how they have changed over the years because you know evidence says to do this so surgery has changed and life expectancy is is much is much more now um talk about what we're seeing the people that the change the people that have come in the front door now
1: yeah it's, it's so significantly like if, if you would have told me in 89 when i first got in this field that you know a, nearly a third of my population uh you know 30 years later or whatever uh would be uh suffering from mental illness N- Nobody thought that that's what corrections would be doing or, you know, 75 percent suffering from addiction. So to your point, uh, by the time someone comes to a state prison in Pennsylvania, they've been through, they've been arrested between seven and eight times. Right. So we have some by the time someone comes to a state prison, they're, I mean, they're damaged human beings. And, and I really think that it's our mission to rebuild them. And it's it's difficult. Like people talk about reentry. And, and recidivism, and, and it's, it's funny to me when they say, you know, you gotta do a better job at re-entry and this and that. I tell them, look, people graduate from the finest universities across this country and commit crimes. Of course someone's gonna get out of the freaking state prison system and commit a crime. With that being said, we, we have the opportunity to change that trajectory and rebuild individuals. But, yeah, to your point, no one, I would think, would have imagined or uh, I would guarantee you that no one SANE would design uh, a system like ours, like ours collectively, like a correction system, as a way to deal with mental illness or addiction. Like, this is not the construct for that. With that being said, the thing I love about corrections is that uh, it's like that old... uh, Commercial, uh, I think it was Motel Six. We'll leave a light on for you. Whoever gets dropped off at our front door, that's what we have to deal with. And whatever issues they have, we have to adjust our systems to to manage them, and not just manage them, but make them better. And I think when I when I talk in the context of when when you send someone to prison, the expectation should be that they come out better. You know, people look at you, cross-eyed. They, granted, it's difficult so for some folks. Maybe it's impossible. But, man, that, I think we have the responsibility to try to do that every day of our existence.
0: Right. No, ab- absolutely. And, you know, w- you've been in the news uh, a lot in the last uh, couple of days just based on your, your Twitter feed for something that makes complete sense to us. But I bet, I bet there were some people in, in Pennsylvania that wondered why the, the Secretary of Corrections w- was out there uh, talking about the importance of pre-K uh, funding. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how you see that as, as almost a form of crime fighting itself.
1: Yeah, so we we our, our department has really taken up the mantle of early childhood education as um, as something that we think is just critical for crime prevention and and to improve communities, right? Um, and, and so I say and improve improve communities because w- what I would tell you and, and this I think this this journey really started for us back in 2014 where we replicated uh, President Obama's My Brother's Keeper. And to do that, we looked at um, young men of color in Pennsylvania, and we found some just stunning and sad statistics. And the one that really sticks out to me is that a young man of color who drops out of school has a 70% lifetime likelihood of being incarcerated. 70%. Like, that's crazy to me. So you could make an argument and that if you can keep kids in school, they're going to be less likely to commit a crime. So it, that was the context that we came to this. And then lo- in looking at it, one of the things that, that I found out through this journey is that kids who read at grade level by third grade are less likely to drop out than those who don't. And those who are on math level by grade four are less likely to drop out than who don't. And when you look at, at things that can change that, early childhood education programs, really starting at, at Nurse Family Partnership and going all the way up through pre-K, changed the trajectory of, of a kid's life. And and here's the other context that I think that's relevant for corrections folks like me. When you look at the impact of, of incarceration in America on our next generation, it is stunning. So I told you we have 48,000 inmates. Those 48,000 inmates have 81,000 children. Wow. children whose parents aren't in their home, and we know from a psychological standpoint that a child' who has a parent incarcerated it's like having a um, it's like having a uh, death of a of a parent or having uh, parents get divorced. right so it's a what what they call an adverse childhood experience. But we also know with proper supports, so those kids can be not just survive or not just commit crime, but they can be, live up to their ability to their god-given ability and i think that's what america's about you know it's about the land of opportunity it's about people being able to achieve whatever their aptitude will allow them to do and, and I, we really see early childhood education as a key to that so we started i think maybe three or four years ago we started doing events in front of our prison where we'd invite law enforcement officials and education officials and human service folks and we we set up um a podium right outside the fence, so people can see that. I mean, it's it's that old notion of pay me now, pay me later. We can invest a little bit of money up front in in early childhood education. We're also big supporters of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, of Boys and Girls Club, of these pro social supports that that put kids and and just I'm sure Michigan is just like every other state in the country. You could tell me what zip codes uh, you have. you get the most people from at your state prisons, those are the same zip codes that have the highest unemployment rate, those are the same zip codes that have the poorest school performance. And the notion to me that we know this, like I don't think there's a state in the country that can't tell you the zip codes that have all these things happen. And if we know that, and we know that interventions like early childhood education and those kinds of things can change that for those kids, and we don't do it, I think, the, the only difference there, there's there's two reasons why we wouldn't one would be ignorance so a lot of people don't make this connection and two is lack of courage and and I, i'll tell you there's a lot of lack of courage in politics but um but we've decided here in our department that that this is going to be part of who we are and while it's not our mission per se we feel like it's our responsibility to to get on this bully pul- pulpit and talk about uh, crime prevention in a bigger sense and talk about spending money in other systems to, to reduce our system long
0: term. No, that's that's really great and uh, I'm sure that it's going to go forward if you're behind it. Uh, you're definitely a good driving force for that and and it kind of touches on something I, was, I wanted to ask you about too is that um, when you talk about politics and, and dealing with the legislature, we've seen just from social media and from some stories, you're pretty blunt uh, when you when you talk to lawmakers <laughs> and when they do things to your budget or about your budget. Because I like how you just laugh when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wonder, I wonder what the response has been uh, like that. I know I'm sure some directors and secretaries across the country, whether in any department, it could be Department of Agriculture, uh, would be leery about you know calling out or saying some somebody's stupid or saying the, uh, an idea or a bill is stupid when they're also the people that control your budget. W- what's that? Interaction been like for you and dealing with politics?
1: Okay, well, I, I do really just say what's on my mind, and um, and I've I've done that pretty much since I got the job. I think the a couple things. I don't, I don't, I don't call anybody out individually. Like that's not right. my vibe. I'm just someone who decided from the day I got this job, I'm just going to tell the truth. I will, um, if I have a, a individual beef with someone, that will be a, a face-to-face beef. I don't do the whole press thing. I don't, I'm not even a Twitter battle guy for or any context, but especially around work. But with that being said, you know, if, if I'm in at a budget hearing and you're complaining about how much I spend, but you're passing dumb laws that in, increase my population without increasing public safety, then just give me a break. I, you act like you care uh, – one day a year at my budget hearing and wag your finger at me and then move on and keep passing dumb laws, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to sit back and um, and just let you get away with that. First of all, it's disingenuous. Um, and secondly, when, when you talk about budget cuts for agencies like ours, you're talking about putting our staff, the inmates, and the public at, safety, at risk. And you're talking about with budget cuts in our context at a time where we have more people coming in addicted in the opioid epidemic across this country in uh, uh, a circumstance where we have so many people with mental illness, if we're not providing services to them, first of all, we're going to have a horrible environment inside our prisons, which will increase the, the future crime of people coming through our systems. Uh, I don't. It's, it's my responsibility to not allow that to go unchallenged. Um, you know, and and so I think that's, that's my responsibility. I will also tell you that these jobs are difficult, and so, like, if I get fired because I'm telling the truth. I'll go be a consultant and make more money and cut my stress in half. So I I, I just approach this job like I'm a man with six months to live. I'm going to stay with everything on
0: my mind, period. That's why we love you, and that's why we wanted to have you on. Jenna, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is along those same lines, um, you've been very involved in uh, NIC and ASCA and CSG, lots of acronyms I'm going to throw at you. But um, And you're involved in some leadership roles in some of those, and I believe you've been to the White House to talk about corrections reform. And I'm just wondering, one, why you, why you feel that that's important uh, for your state to be represented and, and to have that voice nationally? And then, two, where you see some of these uh, larger issues, especially with, you know, the White House is trying to do stuff with, with prison reform and where you see those things headed.
1: Yeah, I've been fortunate in this job and that I've, I've got the opportunity to do some work across the country. And I think, uh, first and foremost, I think um, that corrections as a field needs to have a voice in these national discussions. And, and that hasn't happened historically to the extent it should. And, and you could just point to the Prison Rape Elimination Act as, a, as an illustration of something that was the right thing to do. Like, no one should, should come to a prison or a jail, and have to worry about being sexually assaulted. And if they do, we should be very proactive in, in trying to mitigate that, but also in how we respond to that. However, that that act, which is a federal law, was passed without corrections being on the ground floor and talking about the how. So when it uh, when PREA was operationalized, when it was rolled out, it was almost impossible to attain because it, it wasn't contemplated how to make it operational. Mm-hmm. And I think. While, you know, shame on, on Washington, D.C. for passing that law without having corrections at the table and writing it. Uh, shame on corrections for not forcing our way into the damn room and, and get on the table to write it. So I think that's really the context I bring, and that's why I'm so excited to have a, a dude like Kevin Kemp as our executive director at ASCA, who's, who's uh, you know, if, if they're not inviting us in, you know, kev going to kick the door down. <laughs> like we're coming one way or the other. Because we have to have that voice, and who knows more, or who has a better perspective on like things like reentry, and things like what should be happening in our prisons and jails, and where should we be spending money to rehabilitate people, than the people who are actually doing the work. You know, you hear advocates all the time say that, um, you know, the people most closely involved have to be part of the solution. Well, I agree with that. I think it's important that people who are formerly incarcerated have a voice, but our staff is right there on the front line. So I think that's critical. And, you know, I, you can't be in a job like this. I've been in this job for seven and a half years now. Uh, you have to have a level of optimism, right? So I'm, an, I'm just telling you that because I'm a half, glass half full type person. Um, so I'm fairly optimistic that we're going to get some good stuff in D.C., especially around reentry. Now, with this administration, especially the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, they're real pro, like, mandatory minimums and lock more people up. I I couldn't disagree with them more. With that being said, they do believe in reentry, and I think, um, and, and doing things to improve the back end of the system so people leave less likely to commit a crime. I'm all on board, you know, um. I don't agree with everyone 100%. I probably don't even agree with myself on 100% of the time. So you find areas where you can work together, and I think reentry is an area where we can work together. And I'm optimistic that things like the Pell Grant um, will stay in place because we know that inmates who participate in education programs are less likely to commit a crime, and after all, we're called corrections. So that implies that we're supposed to be, um, correcting or at least providing an environment where people can correct so I'm optimistic at that piece the the front-end stuff the, the expansion of mandatories and taking this uh, 1980s approach to um, to criminal justice policy and, and dusting it off and pulling out of the mothballs um, so we can fail again at it that, that defies logic to me right. um, but I also think that members of the General Assembly aren't playing that right now so I think we're okay on that
2: end of it all right chris well that was uh that was fun and i can't wait to hear part two of his episode next week um where we we get into a lot more don't we
0: yeah so next week we're going to talk to him about his appearance on 60 minutes where he talked about some of the things that he's seen in other states and other countries and what they're doing uh, with corrections reform uh, and a whole host of other issues uh, that we get into Uh, i think people are going to really enjoy part two if you like part one part two i think is even better all right. As always, thank you for listening. We'd love it if you would help us spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leave us a review.
2: You can always follow the department on Facebook at MI Corrections and on Twitter at Michigan DOC, as well as the FOA account at FOA and the CFA account at MDOCCFA. And you can send any questions you have to the show using the hashtag AskFieldDays. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Field Days Podcast.